0: Turn in your Bibles to the table of contents. Find Obadiah, and then turn there. Okay. Um, I mean, if you know where Obadiah is, then you can pat yourself on the back. Just kidding. That's prideful. Okay. Uh, you can turn there. It's on page 819. If you if you have one of the Welcome Table Bibles now. You know obviously I'm joking about that, but chances are that not many of us are really super familiar with Obadiah. We might know that it's in you know the Old Testament. We might know a few things about it. he's a minor prophet, that kind of stuff. but um, I'm hoping that as we go through this this book over the next three weeks that that uh, we will know the message of Obadiah, that we will understand what is going on here and that will actually draw us to a greater love for God and a greater love for people, and a and a deeper desire to be those who preach the gospel and not withhold it from uh, from anyone. And so, um, you know, as a as a preacher of the word, I'm charged with with uh, giving the the whole counsel of God to the church, right? And so. Um, one of the things is um, I was prayerfully thinking about where we ought to go next after finishing our series in the Psalms. Uh, I came to the conclusion that Obadiah was the next book for a few reasons, and I want to give those to you this morning. Um, because I'm charged with the whole counsel of God, uh, we, need to, we need to learn from the entire word of God, right? Now, you, you have your Bible in front of you, and you know how big it is, okay? Okay? I may be long dead and gone before we ever get through this on a Sunday morning, all together, okay? Um, But nonetheless, we need to know every book and what it says. And when we get through every book and what it says, guess what? We'll, We'll start over and just continue doing that because we're supposed to pass this on to the next generation, right? And they need to know. The generation that forgets is the generation that hasn't learned from the generation before it. And so as, not just as me as the preacher of, of the word, but us as believers in Christ, as the family of God, we have a responsibility to pass this on, to know how this points us to Jesus Christ and then to share this with the next generation so that they can grow up and know that. So that's, that's one of those, those reasons, but, but the, uh, uh, another reason is that, that the Bible is full of, of different categories or, or genres, if you will, different, different styles of writing, and so far... In our short life as a church, we have covered a-, a gospel when we went through Mark, right? Then we covered a general epistle or a letter written by someone other than Paul when we went through the, the book of James um, while we were on Zoom. And then we, um, then we covered uh, an epistle or a letter that was written by Paul when we, when we went through Ephesians. And then uh, we just finished up a series in the Psalms, and that's, that's wisdom literature, right? And yet we still have law. We still have history, we still have prophecy, and we still have apocalyptic writing uh, to go through. All of these genres are are in Scripture, and and within those genres are different sub-genres like narrative and prose and poetry and things like that. And it's important to understand that not every book in the Bible was written the same way. Even some of the same genres, the four Gospels are written from different perspectives, right? Right? for different reasons, because they have different authors. Uh, but we need to understand that each book is contributing to the overall story of redemption that the whole Bible is telling. And so while it's, uh, it's important for us to understand what the individual book is saying, it's also important for us to keep in mind how that actually uh, draws us into the greater story that God is telling in all of Scripture. There's 66 books 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 books in the New Testament, written over a period of about 1,500 years by over 40 different human authors. But 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that all scripture is God-breathed, which means that God is the ultimate author. Now, the Bible is God's revelation of himself to us. It was written by men who were directed by the Holy Spirit so that we can know God and that we can find salvation in Jesus. If we have even just that as our mindset, we're going to benefit greatly every time we open it and read it. Now, the book of Obadiah contributes ultimately then to this purpose that we would know God, that we would find salvation through Jesus. But the genre and and the literary structure of, of a book is important because if we want to gain the most understanding of what we're reading in Scripture, we need to think about not only what the author is communicating, Uh, but the way he's communicating it as well. And so one of my goals in preaching through Obadiah is to show how prophecy contributes to the overall purposes of Scripture, that it reveals Jesus to us and helps us find salvation in him. Another reason we're going to go through this book is because of its uniqueness among the books of prophecy in the Old Testament. It's the only prophetic book that's actually specifically addressed to a foreign nation and not to God's covenant people, okay? It's addressed to the nation of Edom, and we'll get into who they are in a minute, but um, but because it's included in Scripture, then, the implicit audience is God's covenant people. This was in the Hebrew Bible, so, so the Jews had this Uh, this prophecy to read and and rely on. And it has tremendous value then for God's people as an indirect audience because it serves as a source of hope to them and to us that God is in fact a promise-keeping God. And we're going to see that in in a few different ways as we go through this. And then that that brings me then to the last reason for doing a series on Obadiah. It's included in what's known as the Book of the Twelve or the Minor Prophets, right? Now, Minor does not mean less important. It just means shorter. If you look at Isaiah or Jeremiah, they have a lot of chapters. They cover a lot of ground. Okay? Obadiah is actually the shortest book in the Old Testament. It's 21 verses long. Minor when you compare it to the length of the other prophets, but not minor when you compare it to the importance of what they're saying. Okay? And so um, in a sense... Or, or, or in these 21 verses, Obadiah lays out a concise summary of the relationship between God and man, and so in a sense, it serves then for us as a as a, a sort of Cliff's Notes version, or whatever the modern day thing of that is. I just remember Cliff's Notes from high school. Um, it serves as a as a as a concise summary, if you will, of of what the rest of Scripture fills out in detail. God reveals Himself to us. And God has, uh, uh, has relationships with the people that he created. But those relationships are in varying degrees, right? Obadiah makes it clear for us. There's God, there's God's enemies, and there's God's people. And as we go through this over the, the next few weeks, it's going to force us then to ask sort of one of the main questions that we need to answer And that is, which one of those three are you? And so with that, I want to read all 21 verses for context this morning, but then we're going to focus on verses 1 through 9 for today's message. And then I'll pray, and we'll dig in. Obadiah, verse 1, the vision of Obadiah. This is what the Lord God has said about Edom. We've heard a message from the Lord. An envoy has been sent among the nations. Rise up and let us go to war against her. Look, I will make you insignificant among the nations. You will be deeply despised. Your arrogant heart has deceived you, you who live in clefts of the rock, in your home on the, on the heights, who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Though you seem to soar like an eagle and make your nest among the stars, even from there I will bring you down. This is the Lord's declaration. If thieves came to you, if marauders by night, how ravaged you would be. Wouldn't they steal only what they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, wouldn't they leave some grapes? How Esau will be pillaged. His hidden treasures searched out. Everyone who has a treaty with you will drive you to the border. Everyone at peace with you will deceive and conquer you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you. He will be unaware of it. In that day, this is the Lord's declaration. I will, will I not eliminate the wise ones of Edom and those who understand from the hill country of Esau? Taman, your warriors will be terrified so that everyone from the hill country of Esau will be destroyed by slaughter. You will be covered with shame and destroyed forever because of violence done to your brother Jacob. On the day you stood aloof... On the day strangers captured his wealth, while foreigners entered his city gate and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were just like one of them. Do not gloat over your brother in the day of his calamity. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction. Do not boastfully mock in the day of distress. Do not enter my people's gate in the day of their disaster. Yes, you do not gloat over their misery in the day of their disaster and do not appropriate their possessions in the day of their disaster. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off their fugitives, and do not hand over their survivors in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord is near against all the nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. What you deserve will return on your own head as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and gulp down and be as though they had never been. But there will be a deliverance on Mount Zion, and it will be holy. The house of Jacob will dispossess those who dispossess them. Then the house of Jacob will be a blazing fire, and the house of Joseph a burning flame. But the house of Esau will be stubble. Jacob will will set them on fire and consume Edom. Therefore, no survivor will remain of the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. People from the Negev will possess the hill country of Esau. Those from the Judean foothills will possess the land of the Philistines. They will possess, possess the territories of Ephraim and Samaria, while Benjamin will possess Gilead. The exiles of the Israelites who are in Hala will, and who are among the Canaanites, as far as Zarephath, as well as the exiles of Jerusalem, who are in Sepharad, will possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors will ascend Mount Zion to rule over the hill country of Esau, but the kingdom will be the Lord's. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that even though this was addressed to a nation that is no more, which we'll see as we go through this, that it still has uh, a, a very timely, very important message for each of us. We pray that you would help us with your spirit to understand your word And that you would help us to humbly submit ourselves to it and to you because of it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. He's a good person, he's just prideful. You ever describe somebody that way? You ever heard somebody describe another person in that way? Let's try it again. He's a good person. He's just a child abuser. That one feels a lot worse, right? Feels like there's a huge difference there. No one in their right mind would would qualify that, right? Well, he's got a good heart. He just he, he just he's killed a lot of people. Right? But being a child abuser, being a murderer those things are not worse than being prideful. In fact, all sin is rooted in pride. But I think we tend to give pride a pass and and we don't see how serious of a sin that it really is. And that's probably because pride shows up in all of our lives just in different ways. If it's the root of all our our sin and and even as believers, if we have sin that remains, that means that we still have pride that remains, right? And so we want to, We want to excuse it in us, and so we try to make it look better in someone else, unless you just can't cover that up, right? But to say someone is a murderer is to say that they're prideful. To say someone is a child abuser is to say that they're prideful. To say someone is prideful is to say that they're on the same plane as the murderer and the child abuser. In our passage today, we're going to see that pride is the crowning characteristic of God's enemies, and God will dethrone all who exalt themselves. This is what we're going to learn today. And so we're going to jump right in. Verse 1 of Obadiah says, the vision of Obadiah, this is what the Lord God has said about Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord, an envoy has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us go to war against her. Now, we're given quite a bit of information in verse 1. Right off the bat, we're told uh, that what we're about to read is a vision of Obadiah. Now, there's 12 Obadiahs in the Old Testament, and, and the only thing that we know about this one is his name, Okay, and uh, which may not actually even be his name. Obadiah means servant of Yahweh. Obadiah means servant of Yahweh, so it could be a pseudonym for the author who was used by God to deliver this prophetic address concerning Edom. In 2nd Peter we're reminded that no prophecy of scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation because no prophecy ever came by the will of man, instead men spoke from God as though they were carried or as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so the vision of Obadiah, what he has seen, did not originate with Obadiah. It comes from the Lord. Right? One author describes Old Testament prophets as seers and sayers. They see and then they say, right? God reveals something, something to them and then they, they speak to others about it on God's behalf. Obadiah mentions four times in these first nine verses that it's God's message that he's delivering. We've heard a message from the Lord. This is the Lord's message. This is the Lord's declaration. This is the declaration of the Lord, right? Right? That means that what Obadiah says here, because it's not Obadiah's words, it's the Lord's words, it's both 100% accurate and, both, and 100% authoritative. That means what is said here is true, and that means we ought to pay attention to it. And that's bad news then for Edom, right? Now, it's assumed... Like I said, this was in Hebrew scriptures, and so uh, Obadiah's Israelite readers would know who Edom was, but, but we may need a, a quick history lesson here. And so Edom was a small region about 20 miles wide, about 100 miles long, that lay to the southeast of Israel in the area that's now the western border of uh, modern-day Jordan, okay? Now, do you want to throw that map up for me? Let's see if we can do this, yeah. Okay, so Jerusalem... Judea, Israel, right? All this right here, from the Dead Sea down to the, the Gulf of Aqaba, that, is, that would be Edom. And a lot of it was on this, um, this, this rocky plain here, okay? You can Google map jo- Jordan, and you can zoom in and you can see this. It was a real place at a real time. It's still there geographically, but Edom is no longer there, okay? And we'll get into that. So 20 miles wide, 100 miles long, Uh, and then it, 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 like I said, stretched between the Dead Sea and the Gulf of of Aqaba, and the Edomites were descendants of Esau. Now, you can read his genealogy in Genesis 36. The word Edom means red. When Esau was born, he was hairy and red in color, Um, and so Edom was a nickname, but he also got that nickname when uh, he was the the twin brother of, of Jacob, okay? Uh, and, uh, but Esau was the one that was born first and um, they were sons of Isaac and Rebekah and, and the grandsons of Abraham. Jacob was given the name Israel in Genesis 32 after he wrestled with the angel of the Lord. So there's a lot of name changing in, in you know, the Old Testament, Scripture, things like that, but um, these are referring to to uh, these two brothers who became nations. Okay? Jacob and Esau became Israel and Edom. Um. And to say that their relationship was rocky from the very beginning would be an understatement. To define it as sibling rivalry would be an understatement. Uh, When they were born, Jacob came out grasping Esau's heel. When when they were older, Jacob tricked Esau into trading his birthright for, uh, as firstborn, all the blessings that he would get, uh, he traded it for a bowl of red stew, right? Right? Because Esau was hungry and he didn't care about anything else in that moment. Genesis 25, which tells that account, says that Esau despised his birthright. In other words, he wasn't concerned with God's covenant blessings being passed on to him. He was concerned with a red bowl of stew being passed to him in that moment. And that's where he got the name Edom, because the bowl of stew was red too. And then when Isaac was old and blind, Isaac the father, uh, Jacob tricked Isaac into blessing Jacob instead of Esau by pretending to be Esau and preparing a delicious meal with, for Isaac. So if you have a person that is constantly wanting to cook you something, you need to pay attention, okay? I'm just saying. Um, I'm just kidding. When, when Esau realized that, that his rights had been Uh, and his blessings as the firstborn had been given to Jacob instead of him. Esau was furious with rage, right? His face was red with anger, right? And, And he wanted to kill Jacob. And then that hatred only grew between their descendants as the nations of Israel and Edom were constantly at odds with one another. Bad blood between these brothers. Bad blood between their nations. God is known as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau, right? And that's why Israel became God's covenant people. But God rules over all nations as the sovereign creator of the entire universe. He, he, he used different nations as instruments of punishment against Israel when they turned away from God in disobedience, which we'll talk about a, a little bit more in depth next week. And now he's summoning the nations to go to war against Edom as an act of judgment. Why? Look at verse 2. It says, look, I will make you insignificant among the nations. You will be deeply despised. Your arrogant heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, and your home on the heights, who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Though you seem to soar like an eagle and make your nest among the stars, even from there, I will bring you down. This is the Lord's declaration. Esau had despised his birthright. That's what it says in Genesis 25. That means that he looked down on with contempt. He he, he looked down on God's covenant promises with contempt. He didn't care about the covenant. He cared about the stew, right? And as a nation, Edom looked down on God's covenant people, Israel with contempt. Edom despised Israel. And so God warned Edom through Obadiah, you will be deeply despised. He didn't say, you're a good nation, you're just, you're just prideful. No, in verse 3, he says, your arrogant heart has deceived you. Edom 20 miles wide, 100 miles long, was a small nation with a big head. And like their ancestor Esau, Edom was proud. That's a very big problem if you're familiar with other passages of Scripture, particularly Proverbs chapter 16. Verse 5 says, Everyone with a proud heart is detestable to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. Proverbs 16, 18 says, pride comes before destruction and an arrogant spirit before a fall. And we're going to see that unfold here. Edom was situated on top of a plateau that stretched along the Arabah Valley, that that deep uh, valley stretch between the Dead Sea and the the Gulf of Aqaba, Aqaba, however you say it. It's still there. You can Google it. But that plateau stood over 5,000 feet above sea level and over 6,000 feet above the valley itself because the valley was about 1,000 feet below sea level. You got another picture here. This is literally that region, okay? Notice the red. I love those kinds of things. Um, It was full of rocky crags and clefts that were so narrow that large armies would have to funnel down to almost single file lines to pass through them. So what that meant is that that it only took a handful of soldiers to defend these passageways against these large armies because they could only fight them two or three guys at a time. So that made Edom's cities virtually impenetrable. One more picture. That is the ancient city of Petra. But look at how narrow that is. There's a camel right here, but it's, it's through there. But that camel would probably stretch side to side, and cover those walls. Did you ever play King of the Hill when you, were the, when you were a kid? Okay, you know the rules, right? Or at least you know you want to be the one on top. The one on top has all the advantage, right? You have the high ground, you have the best chance. Edom made their home on the heights. And they thought no one could bring them down. In their own eyes, they were unreachable. Like an eagle that makes its nest among the stars, if that were possible. Obviously, the prophet is using hyperbole here, right? Eagles don't nest in the stars. But they do nest in the mountains. And their nests are really hard to get to. But God isn't bound by his creation. God's creation is bound by God. He made those rocky crags. He made those clefts in the rock. He brings the stars out by number, and he calls them each by name. Because of his power and strength, not one of them is missing. So Edom may think that they're untouchable by any human army, but they're completely vulnerable to the Lord of hosts. Who can bring Edom down to the ground? God can, and God will. This is the Lord's declaration. Look at verse 5. If thieves came to you, if marauders by night, how ravaged you would be. Wouldn't they steal only what they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, wouldn't they leave some grapes? How Esau will be pillaged, his hidden treasures searched out. Everyone who has a treaty with you will drive you to the border. Everyone at peace with you will deceive and conquer you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you. He will be unaware of it. In that day, this is the Lord's declaration, will I not eliminate the wise ones of Edom and those who understand from the hill country of Esau? Taman, your warriors will be terrified so that everyone from the hill country of Esau will be destroyed by slaughter. Now, Esau and Taman are used interchangeably here with Edom. He's referring to the same place. Taman was, a, was one of Esau's grandsons. If you read the genealogy in Genesis 36, it was also a city. Uh, a lot of times they name cities after their sons, right? And so it was a city in the southern portion of Edom. And so all of this, as Obadiah interchanges these names, it's directed at this nation now, the Edomites relied on several things. They relied on their geographical advantage. They had high ground. They had narrow passageways. They were virtually impenetrable. They relied on their economic advantage. If you saw on that map, there was a road called the King's Highway that ran through that valley. It was a major trade route. And so they, they, they uh, were able to do a lot of dealings with people as they came through. And then their treasures would be protected behind these crags and crevices, right? They relied on their relational advantage. They knew how to make peace treaties with with other nations and gain allies of those nations. They relied on their intellectual advantage. They were known for wisdom, uh, especially in in Taman. If you you are familiar with the story of Job, Eliphaz, one of Job's friends, was a Tamanite. But God rebuked him for his so-called wisdom as a friend of Job. They also relied on their military strength. They had warriors. They were good at what they did. They were well fortified. Now all those things would be used against them. The Lord systematically turns each one of those things on Edom in these verses, the Hebrew verbs in, in verses 5 through 7 are all in the past tense. Some of your English translations will reflect that. The, the CSB says, how you will be, but, but your translation might say, oh, you have been, right? Obadiah is using a, a prophetic uh, technique here where he's, he, he's prophesying about the, the future downfall of Edom as if it's already happened because it's that certain, it's going to happen, and so he can talk about it in the past tense. This is the Lord's declaration, and the Lord doesn't get it wrong. Edom will be devastated. When Obadiah talks about grape harvesters leaving grapes in verse 5, he's referring to the practice of, of gleaning, where farmers would, wouldn't harvest the whole crop so that widows and orphans and foreigners could gather the leftovers to, and have something to eat. It was an act of mercy. Even thieves leave things behind, he says, because they only take what they want. I don't know if you've ever been robbed. If you have, then you're probably familiar with this. Thieves probably didn't take everything in your house or your car or whatever it was, they just took what was quick and convenient for them. They leave things behind. But the Lord, the Lord's not like the farmer. The Lord's not like the thief. He won't have mercy on Edom, and he won't leave anything behind. His judgment against them will be thorough and complete. Note the words that Obadiah uses in these verses. Edom will be ravaged. They'll be pillaged, conquered, eliminated, destroyed, slaughtered. If we use those words to describe any nation... that that's what they will do, we would call that nation a tyrant. But when we use those words to describe what the Lord will do, we call that righteous and justice. Pride comes before destruction and an arrogant spirit before a fall. Edom would fall from the heights and it would be the Lord who would bring them down. They trusted in themselves rather than in the Lord, and the Lord went to war against them and used everything in his arsenal to do so, which is everything. Their arrogant hearts deceived them, and the Lord showed them who is truly above all. And so that begs the question then for us, what, what are you trusting in? Where does your security lie? Is it in your physical health? Is it in your Your strength? Is it in your job? Is it in the investments that you've made? How about the people you know? The book's on your shelf. Are you trusting in yourself, in the kingdom that you've built? Don't, Don't be deceived by an arrogant heart. Consider Obadiah's words this morning as God's grace-filled warning. We get to read these. We get to see what God does to the prideful before he does it to us. That's an act of grace. God is actually taking the scripture here in a way and leaving it for us to glean so that we can see his mercy in the midst of his judgment. This is the Lord's declaration. Those who are proud will not stand. They will fall. Pride makes you God's enemy, and God will judge all of his enemies and bring them to ruin. And so why continue to defy God and deceive yourself with false security? Why not instead admit that God is God and that you're not, right? That's one of the questions that we need to deal with. There's God, God's enemies, and God's people. You're one of those three, Why not trust in Christ instead of trusting yourself? He humbly and he willingly gave himself as a sacrifice for sinners so that all who come to him in humility and who willingly confess their need to be reconciled to God can find that forgiveness and reconciliation through Christ. That's why we are compelled by his love to go and be ambassadors of reconciliation. That's why we plead with people to be reconciled because God is pleased to forgive through his son, anyone who trusts in, not themselves, but in Christ. And he graciously gave his son that, so that we could be forgiven and be reconciled to him. Now, it can be tempting for us as, as believers to have a friend in mind right now or a family member and think, boy, they, I wish they were here to hear this. Right? It, it, can be, it can be tempting for us to look at unbelievers and be prideful that God has saved us if we, as if we've earned it in some way. Come up with our own list of, of qualifiers. But we need to understand something. I gave you the Cliffs Notes version of Jacob and Esau. You should go read that, Genesis 25 through 27. Look at Jacob. That dude is messed up. He's sinister, he's tricky. He didn't earn God's covenant blessings because of his scheming and his deceptions, he received God's covenant blessings in spite of his conniving behavior. Why? Because God is the one who chooses. God chose to fulfill his covenant uh, promises through Jacob as an act of his sovereign grace. Jacob and Esau, neither one of them were worthy of it. But God, in his goodness, granted that to Jacob. And through Jacob's line came the one who was born in humble conditions, the one in whom was no deceit, no scheming, No sin. He came only to do his father's will. You know who I'm talking about? It's Jesus, right? Jesus Christ, the son of God, is God himself. Sovereign creator, sovereign ruler of the universe. He brought the stars out and named them. But he didn't consider that to be something to be exploited. Instead, Philippians tells us that he humbled himself as a servant. He took on human flesh and human nature. And in his humanity, God the Son was perfectly obedient to God the Father, even to the point of death on a cross, where he bore God's wrath against us for all of our prideful sin. For this reason, God then highly exalted Jesus Gave him the name that it's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. No one will bring him down. No one. And like Edom, we were once alienated and hostile toward God because of our pride. And yet, while we were still enemies of God, he reconciled us to himself through the death of his son. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Like Jacob, we're saved by grace through faith and not by anything we've done so that none of us can boast. There's no room for pride in our salvation, only humility and gratitude and praise for the one who's rescued us from ourselves. And as followers of Christ, it's our lingering pride that causes us to wander and stray from faithful obedience to Jesus. Now, I recognize readily, even as I preach this, my own tendency toward prideful things, that I want this message to just like, bam, hit home. I want people to come up afterwards and, oh, that was so good, right? Like, really cut me deep. I'm going to change my ways. It's in all of us. That's why I beg you to consider the Word, God's words, not my words. Think about all of the things that we still tend to be proud of. Even as believers, we can be proud of how we were raised, where we were raised, where we live now, where we went to school. We can be proud of our personal achievements, our kids' achievements, our grandkids' achievements, our our pets' achievements, right? We can be proud of how much we have or how much we don't have. We can be proud of our jobs, our hobbies, our skills. We can be proud of our presence and influence on social media, proud of our community involvement, proud of our political positions. We can be proud of our Bible knowledge, our doctrinal positions, our positions in the church, our devotional life, our prayer life. We can even be proud of our humility. But then it's not really humility, is it? Now, we could keep going, but I think you get the point. Pride is a dangerous sin that we need to constantly guard against. But we can't guard against it on our own, and that's why God, in his grace, yet again, gave us his Holy Spirit. And so if you're actively fighting against pride in your life, don't get prideful. Be encouraged. Be encouraged. Rejoice. But be careful not to take the credit, because that's evidence of the Spirit's work in you. And work hard to stop fighting that pride because the same power that rose Jesus from the dead is now at work in you through the Holy Spirit who dwells in you. And God has given you everything that you need for life and godliness, for humility, for Christlikeness, through the knowledge of him who called you by his own goodness and glory. So rejoice and be thankful that God has brought you low so that he can lift you up. And keep striving, not pridefully in your own strength, but in humility in the strength that he so richly provides. There's only one king of the hill. It's not Edom. It's not you. It's not me. It's God. Pride is the crowning characteristic of God's enemies, and God will dethrone all who exalt themselves. Trusting in yourself or in anything other than the Lord himself will lead you to ruin. This is the Lord's declaration. So let's humble ourselves while we have the chance. Let's see our pride for what it is. It's sin. Let's place our trust in Christ alone and in all that he's done to rescue us as God's enemies and make us God's new covenant people. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you came and humbled yourself, that you were obedient to the Father, that you willingly gave yourself on our behalf. Lord, that's a debt we could never repay. And that's the whole point. We pray this morning that you would help us to see the righteousness of God to judge every sin and hold every human being accountable who has ever lived. And that you would draw our hearts to gratitude and thanksgiving in Christ because we are yours. Not because of anything we've done, but because of everything that you've done so that you get the praise, you alone get the glory. And we're compelled to tell others the good news of the gospel.